latest episode of um uh uh what what show is this again? What's the podcast? I don't. It's it's been a very long time, folks. All right, just just roll the music. It's Eleven Point Collar, hosted by JD Frog Scout Hansel. I'm really not fooling, I'm so glad to see you Hey old pals, my life's been kinda crazy But I'm through with being lazy, here's a podcast for you Well even in the very, very worst of times There's one thing that I know The way to guarantee a little peace of mind Is a walk in the woods, a friend by your side And here we go Hey old pal, it's great to be here with ya The show I've got planned for ya is a real good time Hey old pal, I really can't believe it Say, do you think this apple looks good enough for the occasion? It looks just fine What a chance to play and sing and have some fun The day should never end This will be a Rocky Mountain holiday With eleven PC And all we can see And all of our friends Hey old pal, we must be daydreaming At least the things we're seeing are a dream come true Hey there gang, it's great to be together It just keeps getting better, I can promise you This is going to be the very best of times And we will make it so Make it so No more hustle and bustle and no more telephone lines And now that we're here, let's grab our gear and off we go Hello, everybody. Okay, wait, wait. What the heck was that sound? Was that Steve Whitmire randomly going, yeah? Because uh, I'm pretty sure that's what I heard. You'll, you'll have to listen to the album version of that song and tell me if you hear it there, too. But that's not important right now. Where was I going with this? Oh, yes, right, the the intro. Hiya, hiya, hiya. You're a wonderful-looking audience. It's a pleasure to be here. Bonus points for those of you who replied correctly. I'm J.D. Hansel, and this is episode number 78 of 11 Point Collar. This very special episode has pretty much nothing to do with Rocky Mountain Holiday. I just feel like that number is the best way to welcome you guys back to the old show. It's great to have all of you old listeners and new listeners joining me for what I hope will be a very interesting and informative episode. You see, about a month ago, the Jim Henson Company archivist, Karen Falk, made the trip to the University of Maryland, where I got to see a presentation that she and some other Henson experts gave, talking about archival information, particularly concerning Jim Henson, of course. So you're going to get to hear a bit of what was presented that day, and of course I'll try to uh, have some pictures and other info that will, it'll make things make a bit more sense. Uh, that'll all be in the doobly-doo, also known as the show notes or description. But those words just aren't as fun as doobly-doo. I should mention that another thing that happened uh, that same day as the presentation was a screening of Youth 68. And since that was my first time ever seeing Youth 68, I'll give a few of my own thoughts on that production once we get near the end of the show. Before we get to any of that fun stuff, though, I'll have to do a little bit of housekeeping. So, if you'd like to hear even more Muppetational fun, you can visit MuppetHub.com, the home of my main podcast, productions, and most of my articles, videos and other puppet-related projects. If you'd like to hear some more of my voice on a podcast, you can listen to recent episodes of The Muppet Cast at MuppetCast.com, in which I give some commentary on the 2016 Muppet Madness Tournament. 
And if you'd like to vote in the Muppet Madness Tournament, just go to MuppetTournament.com. If you'd like to follow me, just like us on Facebook at MuppetHub.com Facebook and follow me on Twitter at JD11PC. And if you'd like to contact me, send me an email at me, M-E, at MuppetHub.com. Lastly, if you'd like to hear some totally random Muppet music right now, boy, are you in luck. They don't show favoritism. They offend everyone. <laughs> See, when I promise randomness, you really do get randomness. You have to give me credit for that. Anywho, let me introduce who you're about to hear real briefly, and then we can get started. The four presenters involved were Karen Falk, of course, as well as Anne Turkos, who worked on the archives of the, or works on the archives of the University of Maryland, I should say, uh, Brian Reel, who has taught a course on Jim Henson for the university, and Vincent Novara, the curator of UMD Special Collections for the Performing Arts, who had the task of sort of leading this big project of putting together the website for the university's digital Jim Henson collection. This collection is simply called The Jim Henson Works, and it's filled with great Jim Henson documentaries and Muppet Show episodes and TV specials and experimental films. It's, it's a great catalog, some of it you really won't find anywhere else. Sadly, this collection can only be viewed from very specific computers on the university campus, uh, and Vincent is going to explain why that is in just a moment. First, however... I have to warn you that the audio quality is horrendous. I didn't bring my real microphone to this event because I didn't think I was going to use any of the audio uh, for the podcast. 
I changed my mind a little too late. Um, but you know, I didn't want it to look awkward if I was setting up a microphone in a room full of people who were maybe not expecting it to be recorded. Still, the, the point is, you're hearing crummy iPhone mic quality, and every little bit of background noise will pick up. Uh, if someone sneezes, it'll be loud. If someone coughs, if someone clicks a pen or moves a piece of paper, it'll be loud. But hopefully, for the most part, you should be able to hear everything uh, uh, mostly clearly. It should be pretty intelligible, but I shall strive never to let this happen again. Also, I've cut a lot out of this recording because it was very long, an hour, 45 minutes. Uh, so I'm going to try to give you a few of the interesting snippets uh, from what was presented. So I will be interrupting a lot. For every transition from one part of the presentation to another that I don't interrupt, you'll hear this sound. And with that, I'm out of things to say. Here's Mr. Novara explaining how the Henson Collection came about and what people have been using it for ever since. Now, the way that this collection came to be with us was an event that happened on September 24th, 2003. It was an event in honor of Jim Henson's 67th birthday. We unveiled the Jim Henson statue in Memorial Garden. Um, Campus turned uh, Campus Drive into Sesame Street for the day, and there was a press here, and they unveiled the statue, and it was a great event that all the Henson family were here. Um, and one of the things that I heard about that event is Mrs. Henson looked at everything, and she's like, this is fantastic, but you really can't learn as much about Jim's work and his contributions to the world just by looking at the statue. Sure, Kermit's there, Kermit's fantastic, and all my Kermit, um, but to truly understand the, the breadth of his work, the scope of work, and the impact that he had on so many of our lives, you really need to see his programming, to see his creativity. So she offered to have a collection come here to the University of Maryland. She provided support so that that collection could be rendered accessible to everybody. We wound up um, acquiring 70 videos from the Jim Henson legacy. These videos span the entire life of Jim Henson's work, from the beginning, stuff that he was doing while he was a student here, until work that he was doing um, just before his untimely demise. This was also one of the University of Maryland's first forays into digital collections. So, as such, this was a pretty intense project for us, uh, and especially for me. The resultant project was the Jim Henson Works, which is an online presentation of the Jim Henson Collection. We had to assemble a project team um, to put something like this together from scratch. This included myself as the curator and as a project manager for the University of Maryland. Multiple staff from our IT division working on programming, an engineer from our media library who focused on conversion, our AV cataloger, and our metadata librarian to help describe these items and get these uh, into online catalog, and also a um, digital collections librarian who's brand new here, and her um, assistant dean, um, who was then leading our digital collections research division. We outsourced the design and the framing of the site to Three Spot Media Company, who are a local company in DC who do, and do amazing work with companies like National Geographic, Sony, um, video game companies. They also did some projects for Disney. So this is a um, media company that's used to doing very large-scale projects, but they were so um, just inspired by the idea of working on something like this, even though this would be a smaller-scale project for them that they wanted to be involved. Um, they provided a project manager, they provided a designer, and also an account manager. Um, plus, we worked very closely with Karen Falk, who you will hear from later today, on fact-checking our information, on acquiring visual assets, and then also just on providing general good advice. So there were a lot of cooks in this kitchen. 
And everything that we did had to be vetted through both the Jim Henson Company and the Walt Disney Company, and a lot of lawyers involved. So this wasn't something that was set up. This wasn't a context for work to happen quickly and to you know, be able to charge forward the way that we usually work on. The goal of the project team was to create an online presentation of this new collection, yet in keeping with the spirit of Jim Henson's work, while providing a meaningful way to discover, access, and interact with content. This was called Jim Henson Works that you've seen up there. The objective of this site is to educate, enlighten, and provide online access to resources for scholars and the public regarding Jim Henson as a performing artist, before, while promoting the use of and potential for puppetry in the performing arts using video and some supplemental content. Now, as the first iterations of designs and features were being assembled, we held a lot of um, usability sessions to get feedback from potential users on how the site could be more useful. And then this was eventually launched in September 2006 in time for Jim Henson's, well, what would have been his 70th birthday. We had a big event here in the Clarice that we were, some of us were talking about earlier. And we also launched a gallery exhibition in the Michelson Performing Arts Library that was called Jim Henson Performing Artist. Um, that was a very exciting project. It featured real live Muppets that were nice to have on display for a whole year. Um, one of the interesting things about this, I find, even though that the structure of this page, when you look at it, does look very much like something from 2006, a lot of the design elements, though, and you'll see them as we go through there, feel kind of timeless and fresh. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Jim Henson's work just remains so timeless and fresh. It doesn't really get rooted firmly in any one place. We also have on the front page here the most popular videos, Muppet Show Sex and Violence is always the number one video. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know who's doing that search for about these results, but there's a lot of them out. So we'll go to John Cleese's video. Now, the, uh, there were a lot of elements and a lot of features that we wished to involve in this. Some of them were realized. We also wanted to have a lot of um, annotating possibilities for viewers, so to have people in there watching these videos and then being able to annotate um, the performative things <coughs> that are happening, the techniques that they see, interesting things about the music, interesting things about the, the motion, but unfortunately we weren't able to bring that about, although you're seeing that today in YouTube videos. Um, we structured the video viewing page, the page that you've seen here, this is the page where you actually experienced the video by the hit play. So it looked like a lot of the video streaming services that existed in 2005 and 2006. So this looks kind of like what YouTube did it at the time, except not as powerful. Um, there's always a basic navigation section on every single page. Um, we have a character sketch of some degree on um, each page that you get to. So for the video pages, you get to the splurge, who was someone from 1965. And we planned a lot of data into these pages. So there'd be a summary of the video, some general credits, some Library of Congress subject headings here, there was at least five per page, um, sometimes more, sometimes a few less. And something that we were doing at that time that was uncommon is we also had this curated tagging for related videos. And this was some of the most fun that I had on this project, was getting to select which videos were related to the others. So as a result of being able to do this work, we included a lot of linked data possibilities, because all of this stuff, when we put them in these links, they would keep you within the collections that take you to related content. So if you were interested in other television comedies that were in the collection, you could click this link and that would bring up a bunch of search returns. Um, or if you were interested in seeing one of these other videos, it would take you right to The video box has the year that this was made, a lot of other context, the running time, so you can see the investment you're about to make in time. And then you can also click out, if you really want a lot more detail, to a catalog record for the video. And then these catalog records 
we included a massive amount of data. So we described it as much as we could. We created a lot of authority records as a result of this project. Anybody who was creatively involved in the project got mentioned in one of the 700 fields here. And that was terrific because if you're interested in whoever was working on the set or whoever was working on props or something like that, and not just the performers, you'd be able to find out who that person was and see what else that they worked on. Sometimes within this collection, sometimes within other things that you have to be So, how is the collection being used? Well, I'll start with the bad news. Patrons can only use this collection on campus at select locations due to the understandable restrictions that are placed on these types of videos. Um, we, you know, these are still commercial products in many cases that are being sold in the family and the legacy and everybody's still generating income for this movie, not family. Um, Karen will correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, but there's still, you know, people with financial investments in this work, so we don't want to confuse people and make things available for free that they should actually be purchasing or renting. Um, also, um, the collection has only been used for any sort of serious academic research projects over the last nine and a half years, about 20 times. However, the scope of those projects have been international, so that's terrific. We get a lot of people from Europe, a lot of people from all over the US, some people in Japan using the collection for their research. And unfortunately, we're not getting very many people from the University of Maryland doing real hardcore research into this. Um, that's something I wish to change. That said, I have received over 130 reference requests over the last nine and a half years on this, on this question. And they go through a variety of forms. Um, frequently, is can I order a copy of a select title one another? And at that point, I put them in touch with the Jim Henson Legacy. If they don't, if it's not very commercially available, and they're wondering when it's going to be um, coming uh, commercially available, I just send them to the Jim Henson Legacy.org page and have them get in touch with the Legacy through that one. Um, another popular one is um, puppetry artists from the former Eastern Bloc countries getting interested in the puppetry of Sergei Abrasov. Um, this was a question that was being asked us, you know, twice a year, three times a year for about five or six years, and then that's when it seemed to back off. And then every year around the winter holidays, we get people asking us for John, John Denver and the Muppets and Christmas together. And that's really great, except for one time where someone contacted me because it was their dying wish to see it one more time, and I had to say no, and I put them in touch with Jim Henson, let me see more, and that's something I have to live with forever. Um, but now this video is available on YouTube, so I'm seeing less people come to me for that around the holidays, although people are still looking for it. This is some of the, you can see that. These are some of the statistics of how the collection is being used just from the last four months, just since the middle of August until now. There have been 30,722 sessions, people coming to this site in one fashion or another, with 26,000 of them actually act, acting as users. They're looking at about three pages per session. But we have a pretty high bounce rate, so they're getting here, they're realizing, I can't play this video from my house in Topeka, and then they leave, and they go somewhere else, so they go to YouTube and find the video there, or they maybe rent it or acquire it. Um, but we are getting um, some people using this, because if the average session is two minutes and nine seconds, and someone's bouncing that quickly, that means that we have plenty of people who are actually watching content. Um, with this many views, and that number, of, uh, that duration of time, somebody's watching something we have a total of 26,000 users, more than that, um, which means we have a fair degree of returning visitors. So here we have 22% of our visitors are return customers, which is fantastic. That means that people are having success with this and they're coming back and using it again. 
And then we have a lot of, also I'm very excited about the fact that we have so many new visitors coming. We have 77% of these sessions are new sessions. So for nearly 100,000 page views over a period of four months, those are statistics that I like to see. I would love to have this type of traffic used for all of my collections, so the 200 plus that we care for in special collections. Um, but this is a lasting testament to the importance of Jim Henson's work and what it means to so many people in so many places. When I looked at where these uses were coming from, it was all over the US and all over Europe. So he still is something that means a lot to a lot of people and is really enjoying the test of time. Puppetry is something, like I said before, that transcends all of the performing arts, and I'm really excited to have this collection here to support that interest. Thank you very much. And now for Maryland archivist Anne Turcos, who's come across a number of items Jim Henson worked on while he was studying at UMD. So she put together a slideshow that focused on the programs for theater productions he was involved in, uh, the posters he made on campus, the pictures of him from when he was really very young, all that good stuff. Because this is so visual, however, I'm not including much of her presentation since I'm afraid it just won't make much sense, but you'll still get to hear a few cool things. Uh, one of the things you'll hear a little bit about is speculation about one of the residence halls that has the name Kermit engraved uh, in one of its blocks. And an another fun thing is that many of the oldest photos we have of Jim Henson, uh, the pictures of him working on Salmon Friends and posing with an early Kermit, these were actually taken by the same professor at the college who was a friend of Jim's. I mean, a lot of these early photos were from this one particular photographer. It's really, really cool, and they have a delightful collection of all these pictures he got, uh, and I was lucky enough to get to see some of the originals. So, um, well, take a listen. Uh, Jim enters as a student here in the fall of 1954, September 1954, and he initially enrolled in the College of Arts and Sciences. And by the second semester of his freshman year, he moves to the College of Home Economics, which becomes his permanent home. What you're seeing there on the screen is a portion of our university publications collections, the faculty, staff, student director from 1954-55, we'll cover. And then the bottom of the page there where Jim uh, shows up for the first time as a student. The 1AS next to his name is that he's a freshman in the College of Arts and Sciences. And you see there that he has a Beachwood Road address there in Hyattsville. Uh, sort of like George Washington slept here, uh, many people ask me that question because the word Kermit, as you can see there on the left, is actually carved into the capstone of the parapet wall of the stairs there at Kent Hall. So as you're facing Kent Hall, the dorm that's there on the right, on the left-hand side of the parapet is that word Kermit carved into the, uh, into the stone. But as far as we know, Jim never lived in a dorm here on campus. There really wasn't any reason for him to live in a dorm because he lived basically right next door in the University Park. So uh, I'm sorry to often disappoint people thinking that they're going to be able to sleep in a room that Jim did, but... <laughs> One of the exciting uh, discoveries that we made thanks to Karen was uh, Jim did a lot of work on university theater and university theater programs. Uh, we know for certain that he's, he designed the cover for Dark of the Moon, which you see there on the left. He did work on multiple productions from 1955 to 1957, designing the covers, providing publicity, constructing scenery, and serving as an assistant stage manager. So Mr. Jarossi had the opportunity to photograph Jim and a number of the early puppets uh, 
that he was working on. Those are some of the most special photographs that we have. And I did bring the originals for you all to flip through the various contact sheets. He also had a chance not only to shoot Jim in his home or in local shots, but to also go down to town to the television studio and shoot Jane and Jim as they were preparing for production. We also have a fair number of videos of our own uh, productions that have been created by the university's television station and TV and our university video office that document Jim's career and accomplishments. Our video collection also includes dubs and interviews with Jane and uh, a dub of a program called Artworks This Week that appeared on the Ontario Public Television. There's also extensive coverage of the dedication of the Henson Statue in 2003. Uh, the CTW archives that I just mentioned is one of the most heavily used collections in our mass media and cultural collection uh, group. And we've had researchers in very steadily, I think, over the last several months uh, using CTW. So uh, it's probably of all the collections we have and special collections in the university archives, at least one of the top 10 most popular uh, as a research topic. That's the end. Thank you very much. So the next presenter, Brian Reel, as I already mentioned, has taught the Jim Henson course for the university's iSchool. That's their online schooling program. And so he's mostly going to talk about what he's done with the Jim Henson class and how he structured that. And so he used Brian J. Jones' book, as he will say, as the model. And based on that, what he was able to do is take the different markers the different parts of Jim Henson's life and use those to basically mark important parts of the history of TV, the history of film, and look at Jim's life through an angle that a lot of us may not have done before. So I've included his whole presentation on that. It's only about seven or eight minutes long. You can skip ahead if you already know the history of Jim Henson's work, but I highly recommend that you don't. I think hearing it from this perspective will be very interesting. I had the opportunity to teach Jim Henson, Art, Media, and Muppets, that is film 319J, both in, as a summer course and most recently I did it as a winter intercession class online. And for the class, I used Brian J. Jones's biography as the basis of it. That had just come out when I was planning it. I was able to go through that and get some ideas for how I could structure it. And what to really say about Jim Henson that would enhance the film studies education for these students. And what you get with Jim is basically a history of modern media during the second half of the 20th century. Jim started out when TV was mostly live, mostly local. Low barriers to entry, you break into it pretty easily, but low-level overturns, you weren't going to get instantly rich, you would probably be on local broadcasts. And that's his beginning. At the end of his career, he's running a multinational um, corporation. He has offices in the U.S. and in London. He is working on his own films, he's working on his own TV projects, and he has a creature shop doing special effects for other motion pictures hundreds of employees, and he's trying to sell out to Disney to basically let them run the business end of things, and he would have been the new creative face of Disney had that gone through, had he lived to see that he passed away right before that deal was concluded. And in between those two extremes, you have some major developments in modern media 
that a lot of the students don't know about, and that's kind of what's great about using Henson's career for media history course, is that, you know, his career runs right up until into the early 90s. Three years later, we had Jurassic Park, when everything is going CGI, that's how all special effects are happening. And a couple more years, you have development of the internet, which changes the media massively. So students kind of know from that point, CGI is a thing, internet distribution, internet media is a thing, and they know after that. But what came before, they don't exactly know how that worked out. They don't know that TV started out as a mainly global online media. And them actually getting to see that works out quite well. Um, Henson had a long career making television commercials right when television advertising is taken off. It parallels with what they probably know from Mad Men. And, yeah, and what's interesting with his work at this period is it's when he had these two parallel careers. He got into the puppetry because he was hired for a children's entertainment show that was on the local NBC affiliate, and um, turned out he was good at puppets, he was good at designing puppets. But he was really interested in being an experimental filmmaker, and for a while you feel tension between these things. He, when he moves up to New York, he gets into the experimental film scene. For any of you who have seen Timepiece, which was an Oscar-nominated short, um, that seemed to be the way I think he was planning on his career going. But a few things happen with that. He goes to Europe, he meets some serious artistic puppeteers, but also the huge thing that fully cemented him as the Muppet guy was Sesame Street. And with the start of Sesame Street, I was able to bring in discussions of public television, television for the public good. Um, using the medium as an educational tool, and the fact that this was cutting edge at the time. Uh, and just each point of his career that he hit, it's more innovation, more cutting edge. Um, the fact that the Muppet Show was syndicated rather than directly carried by a single network, I get to talk to students about the regulation stuff that made it so that um, the major networks had to give a certain amount of time to syndication, that they had to give a certain amount of time to outside producers and independent producers, and why the government was involved in trying to make TV have a certain level of variety. You get him making the Muppet movie and making his other films at a time where the film industry is just coming back. It had been hit hard in the 60s, and you get to talk about his distribution model, and then later with films like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, they fit nicely into what's happening with special effects at the time. They very much feel like films out there of their time, even if they're some of the most cutting edge stuff, you can compare them to the special effects films of the 80s and explain why these are precursors to the modern blockbusters we know now. You have the fact that Fraggle Rock is the first HBO original series. 
Without Fraggle Rock, we don't have the Sopranos. We don't have the <laughs> um, But, you know, you get into cable, you have this space for programming, you have this desire for more production, which happened at a perfect time for him because it allowed him to expand and get more work because when you jump from having three major networks to having hundreds of channels, you have time to fill, you have more projects that can be funded. And a lot of the students don't know how cable got its start. But with all of this, what was fun is, you know, I'm talking about this without talking about Henson's art. I'm hitting on the points of the form or the points of technology, of media economics, and so on. But you see this all reflected in Henson's artistry. The fact that New video technologies come out in the 60s, and like immediately, you'll see this with Ruth 68 tonight, if any of you go to the screening, he's playing around with video-based special effects at a very early stage when few people are doing that much with it. Um, and if he had survived into the 90s, I think that he would have been one of the leading innovators in computer graphics and CGI. So he was always pushing the limits of whatever form he could do. And I'm going to wrap up now, but I think that Karen will go much more into some of the art and just what a brilliant designer he was with the tools he was using. Thank you. And, of course, the woman you've all been waiting for, the delightful Karen Falk, uh, who gives quite a bit of the history of the Henson Company archives, and boy, do I wish you could see her slideshow. She opened up her presentation with the song Pass It On from Fraggle Rock, simply because she could. One of the things she shows early on in her slideshow is an old Polaroid photo of the Jim Henson archives when they first started, which was basically a little room with file cabinets and random papers everywhere. It was such an unbelievably disorganized mess. Another thing that I wish you could see is a slide she had on the partnerships the Henson archive people have made with other organizations. You'll hear about this slide uh, but unfortunately, you won't get to see it. It uses a picture of Bert and Ernie with the background of the slide being Ernie's sweater, that design. You'll hear her mention how that slide came about. It's really kind of awesome, and I'm quite jealous of her. Anyway, she'll close her presentation with a video that many of us have heard of and seen pictures from, but I never thought I'd actually get to see it, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing it. So I just wanted to um, introduce you a little bit to the Jim Henson Company archives um, that I'm in charge of. Um, I wanted to tell you about how our archives came together originally, uh, what kind of stuff we have in our collection, and um, then how we've been able to use our collections to share their story with the public, with fans, with our business associates, with our partners. Um, and hopefully, if you work in a special collections or an archives or a library, um, it might inspire you to take a look at your collections and see other ways you might use them to maybe have a thought of things, that, ways you can reach audiences um, that haven't had a chance to interact with your collection. So, you know, not every archivist or special collections uh, librarian has, has the opportunity to both uh, take care of the collections. 
but also use them in fun, in interesting ways. But um, I was very lucky because I have uh, a supportive and very, very supportive and very enthusiastic advocate. And that was uh, Jane Henson, Marilyn alone, Jim's first uh, performing partner, business partner, and eventually wife and mother of these five children. Um, so Jane recognized when Jim Henson passed away in 1990 that there was a, a strong interest in Jim's story and people who wanted to honor Jim and, um, and a real need to be able to respond to those requests. Uh, but the, her children who were running the company were trying to move forward with the with the company, and so Jane took on the responsibility for Jim's legacy and for making sure that um, there was a historical custodian for his story and a way to present his story. Uh, she established the Jim's Legacy Foundation, uh, a board of Jim's friends and colleagues uh, to preserve and present his body of work, and I'm the uh, vice president of that organization. And, um, and she also hired me. So I just wanted to give you a sense for some of the range of materials that um, I found when I started pulling boxes, scripts, uh, set designs, character designs. There's also personal material. You know, there are five Henson children, or, or siblings, and um, there are things that they own in common besides the, the performance and puppet materials. Um, things like their Jim's grandfather, great-grandfather, was a Civil War cartographer. So there is a group of materials relating to Oscar Hendricks. You see stretched out in that chair there, looking a lot like Jim. Um, and so there's a huge range of material that I tried to get my um, sort of head around, figure out what do you do with it, how do you organize it. Um, luckily, Jim helped me. Um, Jim kept a journal, we call it the Red Book, and it's sort of a day log, although he could sort of fill it out at the end of the year based on his uh, appointment calendars, where he just sort of noted anything important that happened. So something was filmed, or he hired somebody, or there's even a lovely entry about his teenage daughter, Cheryl. Cheryl is writing beautiful poetry. Um, so there's all kinds of things that, in that. and from that, we created a chronology, and you can see this typed list. And it's a document that I continue to keep. It's about 130 pages long at this point. And anything that happens in the company, we start shooting something, somebody gets hired, um, somebody gives a talk after the University of Maryland, it goes on that list. And sometimes that's the only way we document a project. Um, it's information that I get through well, the meeting notes or something and I'll throw it on there and hope that maybe at some point we'll get more materials that go into our archives to document, but at least we know it's there. And so if we're looking to see when something happened or if something happened, um, I've got it on that list. So, so Jim made it easy. He also um, saved everything. So um, there was lots and lots of material to use. And I found out when I came to Henson a lot of things that I didn't know because I was sort of casual about the thing. I like the Muppets, I like Sesame Street, I didn't really know that much. I thought that was it. But of course, there's so much more, as we've learned over the years. Um, who knew that Ralph the dog was this really seminal character that um, can be used to document the Jim's move from you know small to big, local to national, um, international, uh, commercials to the big screen. Uh, I didn't know that Jim Henson had been on the Sullivan show 25 times. Uh, 
she made hundreds of covenant miracles, which has become a huge area of research for me, um, and really interesting. And then, of course, he made a lot of experimental films, including timepiece. You can see the storage board there from timepiece. And these were all things that I didn't know about Jim. Now, if anybody has an interest in Jim Henson, they know these things. And it's thanks to the work of lots and lots of people that are getting the word out. Um, the way to get the word out is by forging partnerships. Um, and I have to tell you, to make this slide, I went into a drawer and I pulled out Ernest's sweater. <laughs> so, um, it's a really, really fun place where, where I work. I'm very lucky. Um, and so you need to forge partnerships. Um, I think you've all done it if you're in collections. And certainly for me, um, given my desire to, to give people, fans, particularly access to this material, um, I've forged, forged partnerships within our company and then, of course, um, outside the company. Our PR department is one of my biggest partners, and uh, they love anniversaries, the 30th anniversary of Labyrinth is this year, so we're doing a book and we're doing a lot of things for that. The 30th anniversary for Fraggle Rock was um, in 2003. I worked with our licensing department. We did an exhibit of some historical material at FAM Schwartz because we had a Fraggle uh, uh, Rock toy promotion there. Um, it's our 60th anniversary. Uh, well, last year was the 60th anniversary of the Jim Henson Company. And um, our PR department asked for all sorts of um, quantitative facts um, that they wanted to, to use to help promote our anniversary. So they're a great partner. Um, as we were talking about before, um, our websites, of course, um, I got the idea from the Massachusetts Historical Society who were tweeting John Adams' um, day logs of his uh, trip to Russia or something. I said, gee, we could do that with Jim Henson's journal. And um, then link it back to stories from the archives and materials from the archives, and that would be a way to get this stuff out there. And so um, our art department helped us create this really nice website called Jim Henson's Red Book. And over three years, I ended up writing about 750 entries for it. Um, and really got to dive deep into the documents, um, telling little tiny stories about Jim's work and showing really wonderful pieces of art documents and photographs. Um, we also have the, the darkcrystal.com website where if you couldn't figure out how to take a picture of this, you click on um, these things, they open up and there's images and documents and things. So um, it's a really fun way to be able to share uh, stuff in the archives and stories about Jim Henson. And the Red Book thing has had a lot of legs. That's the book Imagination Illustrated came out of that, came out of that uh, website. Uh, I approached our um, home video department, the distribution department, when they were talking about doing a special collector's edition of the Dark Crystal. And they said, oh, what should we put on the extra features? And of course, we have all sorts of video and, and interviews and things. But um, I said, well, you know, we have this really great pad of paper that Jim wrote his ideas on. Could you pack a facsimile of it inside so that fans could hold it in their hands and feel really connected to the creative process? And Sony, who was our distributor, said, oh, no, we, we can do that. We haven't done that before, but yeah, we can do that. And so um, that's what you see here is a product. That was actually about 10 years ago. Uh, but it inspired then what we did with our Fractal Rock Box sets, um, where for each season we packed in something special. The first one, the one on the left there, um, is a steno notebook that Jim Henson wrote, his original concept for the film. Um, 
called The Woozle World. And if you read any biographies and articles about Fabro Rock and what have you, they all mention it, but um, it's not been reproduced anywhere. And so here, fans could actually hold it and read Jim's notes and see what he crossed out. And um, I just thought it was such a fun way of getting that and making it available to people. Um, season three, I guess, had all these drawings, reproductions uh, from Michael Fritz, who was the conceptual designer on the show, who designed all the characters. So we went over to his apartment and we scanned all of his artwork. And then he wrote notes about it, things he remembered, and um, Sony put together, no, Hit Entertainment put it together. So that was really fun. And then I don't really need to talk about this. This is my the book, Imagination Illustrated, which has been mentioned six times, and it's still in the available. But other archive projects have inspired other books. Um, we did an exhibit, Designs and Doodles. It was the first exhibit I did when I got to Henson because I found all these wonderful pieces of art that Jim had done that had never been seen. Nobody had seen it. And so we had a little art exhibit, which was um, at the McCallum Library. Um, and, and our consumer products division said, oh, that stuff is really charming. And I gave them scans of everything. And they developed a, a line of product stationaries, cards. And there's this book available now on Dueling with Jim Henson, which is a fun interactive thing. You can open it up and look at his doodles and do your own doodles. And um, one of the projects I've done with the archives was create a database of quotations. There's lots and lots of transcripts of interviews and interviews from magazines. And at one point, you know, people are always asking me, well, did Jim say anything about a particular subject? So I, this was a long time ago, I Xeroxed them, I highlighted, I cut them out, I taped them to cards, I put them in a file box, and then eventually I created a, a database um, of the quotes. So when Cheryl Henson was approached uh, by Hyperion about doing kind of a words of wisdom from Jim Henson book, it was really easy for us to go into that database and pull lots of quotes. And then we went back into the archives um, to find other sources, uh, scripts and song lyrics and letters and things like that. But it was a really um, practical, easy way to start. Um, we partnered on the outside with um, Archaea, which is an imprint of studios. Um, it's a graphic novel publishing company. And they initially came to us to do Travel Rock comic books, um, and we've done that with them. And uh, they have a really terrific guy who was their editor-in-chief now. He's more senior than that. Um, a young guy, who, Stephen Christie, who you see there in the picture. And he has all sorts of ideas for handsome materials. And he said, well, let's um, republish the novelizations based on the films. And I don't know if you remember in the 80s, 90s, novelizations uh, based on movie scripts uh, were very common after a movie came out. It happens that the ones done for the Henson films, like so many things Jim did, were done with tremendous care. And they weren't just sort of done by some third party without much interaction. But Jim was heavily involved in the process and hired um, really great writers. So we were able to reprint those um, with Archaea and add archival material into the back. So the Labyrinth one has a facsimile of Jim's idea notebook, uh, things that his ideas for Labyrinth. And again, you can hold it in your hands and flip through it and really get inside his head. Um, and what was the most fun for me with those projects, besides getting his stuff out, is that we went to Comic-Con. We went to Comic-Con in Chicago, Comic-Con in San Diego, and Comic-Con in 
New York and um, promoted them. And that's, if you've ever been, well, no, no, it's really, that's quite a scene. And, and more recently, I was at Dragon Con, which is also fun. Um, a really great archive project that we did with RKN, again, it was Stephen Christie coming to Lisa Henson and saying, do you have anything in your archives that never got produced? You know, something is sitting there that was rejected, and um, Lisa asked me, and I pulled a bunch of stuff from the 60s mostly, things where Jim was pitching, um, and this was wearing his experimental filmmaker hat. Um, he had written a screenplay for something called Tale of Sand, which was sort of this existential, um, paranoid uh, adventure uh, where a guy goes out in the desert and all sorts of things happen to him and um, he can't control them and um, one is stranger than the next and it's very circular. You can understand why the movie did not get made. <laughs> However, um, they hired uh, Raymond Perez, who's a wonderful artist, to turned it into a graphic novel, and I gave them all sorts of archival materials, including the original script, which you can see he used as part of the art in the book, um, lots of photography and film material that Jim was doing so he could get inside Jim's head. And this thing was a, was a huge success, um, and it won Eisner Awards, which is kind of the Oscars of the graphic novel publishing world, and Harvey Awards, and it was published in Italy and in France, and then they um, you know, why waste anything? He published a second volume, which was the illustrated screenplay that they actually reproduced in the uh, archival screenplay, and that's available in the box set. One of my um, biggest partner, of course, is um, the Jim Henson Legacy Building. You can see the group of us, our board, standing around the podium of the Museum of the Movie, and there's um, most of the projects that we've done with the University of Maryland over the years. Um, we're done through the auspices of the Jim Henson Legacy. Um, the statue, the legacy was not involved in the competition process to find the sculptor and in helping the sculptor get the image of Jim right. Uh, we've partnered with, with many, many, many institutions on a screening series at Muppets uh, Music and Magic. We started at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and um, we've toured it all over the country, universities and cinematechs, and then even in Australia. Um, the Jim Henson's Fantastic World was the traveling exhibit that I curated, and we toured that with the Smithsonian Institution's Traveling Exhibition Service, and that went to 13 cities over four years. About a million people came through it, and um, so we got to show them, among others, Manamana, there you see. Um, and then we've made uh, partnerships with museums. The Henson family had this, bird, this collection that the Jim Henson Legacy managed of uh, historic puppets. Um, and they, we decided that in the best interest for these puppets, um, because we aren't going to build our own museum, was to give them away to people that would show them off to the public and make them accessible. So we gave a small group to the Smithsonian, including the Salmon Friends puppets, which came from Jim's um, career here in Washington, and that includes the original Kermit as well. We see Jane there at the donation ceremony with, with Kermit. Um, the largest group of puppets um, came into the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta. It was mostly a performing arts center. Um, Jim was involved over the years. He was there at the opening, the ribbon cutting. And um, they were talking about finding a way to better display their international puppet collection. And so we got involved and said, well, we would like to be involved in a family with donated puppets. And they ended up donating about 500 items 
uh, puppets, costumes, and props. And the Center for Puppetry Arts built a whole new wing. Um, it's a museum wing, the worlds of puppetry and museum. You can see Bonnie Erickson there under the sign. She um, has been our executive director of the Legacy Group, and she also designed this piggy. Um, and so they have built this museum that is half international puppetry and half Jim Henson, and it opened in November. The Henson family, Jim's children and grandchildren, are there coming the ribbon. Uh, so if you have a chance to go to Atlanta, I, I really recommend it highly. And we're now working with them to do another temporary exhibit. Um, they're going to have changing exhibits, so something to open about labyrinth for the fall. Um, the other partner we've given about 350 items to is the Museum of the Moving Image, which is in Queens, New York. Um, and they are building um, also a Jim Henson Gallery, a little smaller, um, but they're focused more on moving images, and whereas the Puppetry Museum is focused more on puppetry, but they're complementary exhibits, and um, I think we're going to reach a lot of people with our collections that way. So, even though we're getting all that stuff out there, this is sort of a gratuitous slide too, but um, there's so much stuff in this boxes. We still have so many great things that I want people to see. And um, so there are two of them I just thought I'd put up for you. Um, that drawing on the left was actually drawn by Orson Welles um, when he was appeared in the Muppet movie as Lord Blue, the head of the movie studio. And um, I just think it's such a charming thing and something people don't know about Orson Welles. Um, and the other are just meeting notes that um, uh, from files we have from Michael Frith, uh, the artistic director at the Muppets for many years, and he just do them like this when he was in meetings, and it's just such a, such a, a really wonderful one to show you. So, I have a little piece of video now to end with, um, which, again, you see how much or how much it applies. But it's um, supposed to be inspirational, and I want you all who work in collections to um, value what you have, find things in them that are, that are really special to you, and um, find people inside and outside your organization to help you share them, um, whether it's for an anniversary or for a special event or whatever. Um, and so hopefully this video will just get you excited about doing that. And so, my friends, before we adjourn, I must tell you that as the years go by, I come to feel these get-togethers are really family reunions. It's a joy to visit again with many of you veterans who have meant so much to this company throughout the years. And it's also a joy to see the bright young faces of our new people. You are our future. Yes, this may be a great company, but in many real ways, it's truly a family. A family of honest men and women pulling together in the great American tradition. The tradition of a great land. The tradition of a great people. The tradition of progress. The tradition of honest toil. Men and women working toward common goals, providing the world of business with high quality and needed goods and services, and yes, earning an honest buck. And I won't apologize.
apologize for that. I won't apologize for this great democratic free enterprise system of America. We're here to make an honest dollar. And I know that each and every one of you feel as I do. We have toiled to build this great company. The time has come to redouble our efforts. The future awaits us. And now is the time to act. Now is the time to move onward. I ask you to throw away old outmoded concepts. I ask you to discard uncertainties and doubts. I ask you to cast aside the past and move with us into the future. For the sake of our great country and everything that makes it great. For the sake of free enterprise. For the sake of the company. For the sake of the family. For the sake of the children. For motherhood. For apple pie. For puppy dogs and kitty cats. For everything that is near and dear to us. I ask you to remember just one word. The one word that makes it all possible. And that word is sell. <laughs> That is the famous, or perhaps infamous, Sell, Sell, Sell Muppet meeting film, and I'm really glad she brought that along. I did cut a couple things from her talk, uh, but not much really. You did hear most of it, aside from the Q&A. She did mention the unboxing videos that the Henson Company did with ToughPigs.com, so be sure to check those super fun videos out. Uh, and she also mentioned the musical monsters of Turkey Hollow, which you can read about at MuppetHub.com. During the Q&A, I asked about videos they might like to add to the university's digital collection, and the two main answers I heard were the Muppet meeting films and the Star Wars episode of The Muppet Show. This does not surprise me. Moving on to Youth 68, Here's a little description of this project in case you've never heard of it or you need a refresher. From the Muppet Wiki, Youth 68 is a one-hour documentary produced by Jim Henson and directed by John Stone, covering the various lifestyles of the 1960s. The special, subtitled Everything's Changing or Maybe It Isn't, aired over NBC on April 19th, 1968, as part of the anthology series Experiment in Television. The following year, another Henson production, The Cube, would air on the series. So here's a little clip from the film. I think this age is challenging us as a youth. We have our duties to do, and I think we can do them. The kids today just want something for themselves, something they can grab onto and hold onto and say it's theirs. And the kids want to be free, man, like, that's where it's ahead. Well, youth is always an exciting time. Well, it's certainly more exciting than it ever was before. Yeah, sure, it's always more exciting than what? You can do anything and make it exciting. Everything's constantly changing and attitudes are constantly changing. Morality, the establishment, our generation, everything is dynamic. Well, everything is, is happening. Everything is happening all over the world. Everybody has his own bag. And like, kids are growing up in a, in a wondrous age. And I think this generation realizes that uh, they're the generation who's going to really have to, uh, you know, do an Oedipus on their fathers and just uh, take over and really make it work, you know, because... Everybody else before us have been saying this and saying that, and nobody's ever done it. By 1970, half the total population of the United States will be under 25 years of age. 
Okay, so I'm going to give a bit of an explanation of the project and a bit of my review all at the same time, so bear with me. We'll see how this goes. This is considered to be a collage. It says in one of the opening title cards, a collage by Jim Henson. And that is what it is. I mean, yes, John Stone is credited as the director, but Karen did say that he was mostly directing things in the studio, so when you would see one of those dancers or something that sort of comes in and makes a weird transition. John was more so involved in that kind of thing, but Jim had his hands all over this. And this production really reveals how good an editor Jim Henson was, because he may not have been credited as the editor, but he was working with the editor getting exactly the film he wanted. And it's amazing. Like, the editing in this is not not just clever from a technical perspective. Of course, from a technical perspective, it is amazing editing. These are outstanding visual effects. But the way that he does the timing and the way that he organizes everything so that you smoothly transition through all the different topics that they're talking about, it's it's kind of brilliant. See, the structure of the film really is just mostly just interviews. You'll see them cut to various people. Sometimes it's important people. Sometimes it's uh, professors or people who have some authorities. A lot of times it's musicians. But for the most part, it's just your regular Joes out on the street, whoever they happen to bump into who is willing to talk. And Jim constantly is contrasting the views of the younger people that they interview, you know, the, the 30 and younger crowd, with the views of the 40 and older crowd. And when you see this contrast, sometimes it really does lead to things that are absolutely hilarious. Like when they bring up music, the kind of rock music that everyone was listening to at the time. You'll hear the, him cut back and forth between all these views. I really like it. Oh, I think it's repulsive. I think it's really great and groovy. And then they cut to some old guy going, it aggravates me. And that one got a pretty good laugh at the screening. It's such fantastic editing. And... For the most part, when Jim is doing this, you're hearing all these different perspectives, but he doesn't really voice his own much. This really wasn't a way for him to give a message. He's just kind of showing you what different people thought at the time. There, there is one exception to that, though, which is when they went to uh, shoot things about, well, about the war, about people fighting in the army and all that. When they use that footage, you can tell by the juxtaposition that he's really not fond of war. And actually, when they went to shoot at the, um, gosh, I can't remember where they were shooting, but they got permission to shoot some footage of soldiers. Um, and according to Karen, Jane, Jane Henson felt really bad about that because they thought that Jim was making this very pro-army film that was going to get people to join. Um, and that's not exactly what happened. But... It's just, it's so fun hearing all these different views on what the time period was like. And it's its like a time capsule. It really is. It's unlike any documentary that you'll see because it is, it's a collage. A lot of times you'll hear things like, um, you'll have several, several old people saying that children love to be disciplined and told what to do. Um, and then you'll hear about a generation gap. Some people saying there definitely is a generation gap. Some saying, oh, I don't see any. Some people going, I don't even know what that is. And, again, it's all done in a way that is sometimes funny, but always informative and gets you thinking about the different views that different people had at the time. One of my favorite moments in here is, it, it just comes out of nowhere, completely out of nowhere. You see this guy who's got face paint all over half of his face. He's got long hair, clearly a hippie, sounds kind of British. 
And he says, oh, I guess the sky is going to be around for a while. That's a good thing. What does that even mean? I don't know. It's just there. And you really get the sense that a lot of these people were so drugged and so crazy. And of course, one of the ways that he focuses on that culture is with the music. He spends a long time on the music, as well he should. That was such a big thing at the time. And you hear so many different songs from approximately that time period in a number of different styles. Within the first uh, 20 to 25 minutes, here are the songs that I heard, uh, just the ones that I was I, I was able to pick out from either recognizing them by ear because I know a lot of these artists, or in some cases I had to Google whatever lyrics I could hear just so I could get uh, some idea of the soundtrack. So you hear April Come She Will by Simon and Garfunkel, 1230 by The Mamas and the Papas, My Generation by The Who, I Can't Get No Satisfaction by The Rolling Stones, Subterranean Homesick Blues by Bob Dylan, 500 Miles by Peter, Paul, and Mary, Who Am I by Country Joe and the Fish. I've never heard of Country Joe and the Fish. Uh, of course, Somebody to Love by Jefferson Airplane, You Keep Me Hanging On, as recorded by The Box Tops. You really don't hear much in the way of uh, Motown in this soundtrack, interestingly. They don't focus on that. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of come back to that in a way, but uh, you also hear some weird warped version of Strawberry Fields Forever when they're talking about uh, drugs, and uh, Little Boxes by Pete Seeger. So you're getting a lot of folk music and acid rock mixed in there, too. But then my favorite is probably when they're talking about technology, and so he plays a bit of the song Telstar. To you, that may mean absolutely nothing. But that's why it meant so much to me, because I love that song, and no one's ever heard of it. It's this weird instrumental track that was a really big hit in, like, 1962, and now it doesn't get any radio play. Nobody nobody cares about it, because it's so weird. In fact, I'm going to remedy this. I'm going to play a little bit of the song for you right now. Isn't that, isn't that just so beautiful? I find that so... It's, it's a great mix of beauty and strange, warped electronic sounds. I, I really find that delightful. So he clearly had a lot of fun with the soundtrack. And unlike with Salmon Friends, when he would just kind of use whatever music he wanted and hope he wouldn't get in trouble, uh, this time he got the appropriate... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He got it cleared. He made sure he had the rights to use all the music that he did, even with the Beatles music that he used, like... Um, uh, we Can Work It Out, which plays over the army scenes. Again, you can kind of tell what Jim's views were on war at the time. One of the few downsides to this production is that you really are mostly hearing it from the perspective of white people. And that's kind of annoying, because I, I completely understand that at this time, you kind of had to be careful with not just what you put on TV, but who you put on TV, because need I remind you, on Star Trek, a few years earlier, when Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Ahura uh, shared that kiss, that whole episode was completely blacked out in four southern states. So I imagine he didn't have all that much freedom with what he could share uh, of what one might call the black experience at the time, but I was still bummed that what I was mostly hearing uh, was white people. There were some people of uh, Hispanic origin, it seemed, uh, but for the most part, there were, I think, it, you, you basically see about seven, seven African-American men. Um, one African-American woman gets one brief line. 
Uh, but but <laughs> it's it's unfortunate that five of the African Americans that they interviewed were during the part of the special that was focused on drugs. That doesn't send the greatest message. So it that part is unfortunate. But for the most part, you are getting to hear a lot of different perspectives, and it all just mixes together beautifully with all these uh, various quotes that are, they're all pulled from different people. He's grabbing stuff from Shakespeare, stuff from the Bible, stuff from Snoopy, and mixing it in such a brilliant way that it is, it's something very, very special. And I think as long as you know going in that what you're getting is this collage, this, this hodgepodge or potpourri of all these different perspectives on youth in the 60s, then I think that you won't be disappointed. So if you get the chance to see this, please do so. I know it's pretty hard to find. Um, if you go to the University of Maryland, of course, you can see it. But they also have it... Where else is it showing? Uh, looks like it's currently available for viewing at the Museum of Television and Radio. Th those are most of the places where you can see it. It's pretty much just those two, which is unfortunate. Um, but if you ever get the chance... I really do think it's a delight. I really enjoyed it, and this might be one of my favorite productions that Jim Henson ever did, honestly. I think that it's it shows his technical abilities and his abilities as a storyteller in ways that a lot of people never would have expected from Jim Henson. It's it's really something special. And now, this. La 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 when it's nice and bright and it brings delight, let your heart choose right. Gotta uh, uh, pass it on. When it rolls real good, like a rolly should, then it's understood. Gonna uh, uh, pass it on. When you're giving love away, love will come again to stay. And what you give is what you gain. Well, with that out of the way, this leads me to, well, wrap up the show. I think I'm going to do something a little bit different this time for this wrap-up. So let me just briefly remind you, first of all, you should be voting in the Muppet Madness Tournament. That is your civic duty. But now I may move on to close this show in a way that I have never done before. I've never tried this, but I want to give it a shot. I may drop it after a few weeks. But this is going to be uh, JD's random closing song of the week. And what I'll do is, when the show is done, when it's concluding, you're going to get to hear whatever song I want. Some of you may remember that I had an idea for something called J.D. Hansel Radio, in which I basically play uh, lots of music that I really like that you may not have heard before. Um, I think Dylan Gale has done something kind of similar, although uh, perhaps what they do is a bit more weird, funny, or interesting than what I do. But I'll just leave you with a closing song that... I really wish a lot more people had heard of. You heard a bit of Telstar before, 
And now you're going to hear a different instrumental track that actually just came out within the past few weeks. It's sort of similar in its structure by starting just with the electronic sounds leading and then later bringing in a vocal, but still no lyrics. It's a fun tune that's actually a B-side to a recent recording by the Pet Shop Boys. So I'm going to leave you with that, but until next time, waka waka, wubba wubba, and weeba weeba. <laughs>